0: This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Someone was murdered at that house. Why did you never go into that place?
1: Something never felt right about it.
0: Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in From Los Angeles, California Bloody Disgusting presents The Boo Crew Podcast Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand And Leone D'Antonio
2: This is Trevor Hey, it's Lauren It's Leo And we are the Boo Crew Welcome to episode 92
1: Happy horror days and a happy boo year You're invited into the speakeasy to hang out for a conversation with writer director Nicholas Pesch and iconic horror legend actor Lynn Shay.
2: It's a spoiler free chat in celebration of their new film The Grudge. A time of release opening in theaters everywhere January 3rd. The first horror film of the year I think officially. Learn about where this film fits into the pre-existing Grudge universe. The secrets of the perfect Grudge croak. The original ghosts and a whole lot more.
1: Uncover some of Lynn Shay's most disturbing scenes captured on film yet the future of the insidious franchise penny dreadful and where you can see her next come on in if you aren't too afraid of curses that is
3: this is nicholas pesh and this is lynn shea you
4: are being cursed by another haunted episode of the boo Groove.
1: i think something followed me home
0: mommy what's going on what's wrong
1: we need to leave Right now. Go ahead, scream, that's all we need
0: Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy
2: Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio She is entertainment royalty with an illustrious career spanning over 40 years She has a gift of bringing oftentimes whimsical characters to life And is such a joy to watch as the fascinatingly versatile storyteller she's become Projects as diverse as roles on beloved TV series like ER, The Twilight Zone, Who's the Boss, Falcon Crest, My Name is Earl To an impressive list of film credits, including something about Mary, Kingpin, Pump Up the Volume, Detroit Rock City, and many, many more. She is an icon in the world of genre and horror, taking on everything from Critters, and Nightmare on Elm Street, The Running Man, Ouija, and is the heart and strength behind James Wan and Lee Whannell's immensely successful, insidious films, playing psychic medium and horror superhero, Elise, one of the most impactful franchises ever created and a modern-day classic. He is an exciting and award-winning young writer, director, and editor. His first film, The Eyes of My Mother, released in 2016, is legendary. It was nominated at Sundance that year. It is a beautifully paralyzing experience that you must see. He followed that up with the equally incredible Piercing in 2018, starring Mia Wasikowska, it took home more awards and a nomination at Sitkiss. His new adventure is a return to the terrifying world of The Grudge, originally dreamt up by Takashi Shimizu back in 2000 with a series of straight-to-video releases, followed by both an American and Japanese cinematic exploration of the curse. This one promises to be the most terrifying yet, The Grudge. In theaters everywhere January 3rd, we welcome its creator and one of its stars, Nicholas Pesch and Lin Shay, everybody. Yeah! Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you guys so much first of all for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you guys. And congratulations on coming to the end of one journey and the beginning of the next part of that journey which is letting everybody see this crazy nightmare fuel you have put on film for us. Yes. <laughs> At last.
3: It's Nicholas's fault.
2: <laughs> how does I mean how does it feel to come to this part?
4: It feels g- equal parts good and daunting you know it's like I started writing the movie in 2016 so it's been wow. sort of a, a long road to get here I literally made piercing while I was writing this and I think that now you know it's like a weight off my shoulders that I can stop thinking about what people will think about it and soon will know but that's also the daunting part
3: I'm really excited to- to show the film to people. I finally saw the, the final version just about a week or so ago, and it's a beautifully constructed <laughs> what's the right word? A sort of ode to rage. And I had just saw the original, uh, the Japanese original, Juan, just actually about a week ago. I was telling Nick today, finally, really seeing the genesis of what he wrote. And the expansion of the parallel of what Rage is about, and especially now in 2020 when everyone is enraged, I think it's an incredible film to release right now, and that it's going to hit people in different ways that we are are unexpected.
2: Very well said. Lynn, what do you think about this part of the process, the, the press part, when you are talking about a movie? You've done it many, many times. Do you get anything from that?
3: It's interesting. I I sort of start out usually rusty and don't understand what I'm saying to other people. (laughs) And then I'm going to myself, I can't think of that word, what's wrong with me? And then by about the third interview, my wheels are greased and I'm off to the races. And sometimes I surprise myself how smart I am. (laughs) And sometimes I surprise myself how speechless I can become when I basically am a person who does not stop talking. I truly love it. Today was really exhausting. I mean, it's I don't know how many interviews we we must have had a lot, probably close to 50, I guess. And, you know, some international. So there's different elements that make it difficult for me. Someone who has a very thick accent, especially if it's a phone interview Mm -hmm. and you can't really understand what they're saying. Those are really stressful for me. Just start saying random things and hope you hit something. Really, Exactly. That sounds sounds about right. So, um, but anyway, to answer the question, which also I often do not do (laughs) because I ramble. But um, to answer the question, I don't remember what the question was. (laughs) No, you
2: answered it perfectly. It was just what this what this process feels like and what does it do to you? No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So this film offers another chapter to a story that has become a staple Of horror is well regarded as perhaps one of the scariest ever made by legions of horror fans. And it's going to undoubtedly unleash this world onto a new generation of uninitiated horror fans as well to this franchise, which is wonderful. Now, just to have a bit of fun with you guys, what are your earliest impactful memories with the horror genre?
4: For me, I was like a kid who was so afraid of horror movies. I think that's part of the reason why, like, I'm drawn to them now. It was so (laughs) affecting as a kid, but I always liked the idea of horror movies. And as a result, I sort of gravitated more towards retro horror, like fifties, sixties, black and white stuff. Like I grew up obsessed with psycho and night of the hunter. Me too.
3: Me too. Those, and, I swear to those are t- the two films I always talk about. Yeah. Night of the hunter in particular.
4: Yeah. I oh. love those movies. And I think that for me, when I was younger, having the black and white and making it feel dated made it easier for me to accept the scares and from an early age i loved the idea of the sixth sense but could not handle the sixth sense when i was really young wow. and my mom made a copy of it like she taped it off the tv and cut out all the scares oh wow so I what a would mom that's it, amazing really? like i would watch it as a family drama <laughs> yeah. with no ghosts and then eventually when i got older I was like, I don't even remember what the real version of this movie is, and so I kind of got to like rewatch the movie as an adult and be like, oh wow, oh wow, that's that's awesome, and I think part of it. You know, me being so scared, like when the first, when the Sarah Michelle Gellar grudge movie came out, I was 14 and even at 14, my friend's like, you want to go see this movie? It was like, fuck that. that Give me something black and white or like really campy. And then I'm there and I'm sold. But I think that then like I went to film school and was sort of inundated with all the like art film stuff that when I eventually found my way back to horror, it was an awesome sort of. Just a whole canon of movies that I could newly experience and and discover. And then especially as like more and more foreign horror came to things like Netflix, discovering that like other countries do horror better than a lot of the horror here. It was like, oh, oh wow, there's so much. But it was always like Night of the Hunter and Psycho were kind of like the pinnacles of my childhood.
2: Wow. Lynn, is there any besides Night of the Hunter and and Psycho that have stuck with you?
3: Those were the earliest ones, especially Night of the Hunter. That scene of Shelley Winters floating in the water. I'll, I'll never forget that. And Robert Mitchum just was the scariest is still one of the scariest monsters I think I've ever seen on screen and especially having to do with the children. And I was also, I mean, I, I'm a lot older than Nick, but that was a movie I saw when I was, I, I don't know when it was made. Do you know what, what the year was of Night of the Hunter? 1950-something. Uh, yeah, so I was, I saw it. I can't remember if it was in the theater or, but I mean, The Shining also always comes to my mind just mm. because it, it is such a classic. And all the, uh, Hitchcock in general, I mean, the was a very powerful presence for me. Uh, Diabolique. Yeah. It's a film that I haven't seen in so long and I can't even remember what I'm so was so frightened of. But I do remember it frightening me and in a way that I kept dreaming of. Watch it uh, again because we stole stuff from you? I grunge. will. I will. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I will watch it again because that that was an. I just remember being really fearful because things don't really scare me that much in a classic way. I'm not a boo scare person at all. But insidious, that word, you know, something lingering that suddenly you don't even it's kind of an unconscious fear that these things stimulate that are the more powerful ones, certainly. And that's why Night of the Hunter, I think, you know, a little kid watching that I still gives me chills, you know, with that leaning, leaning. I'll never I mean, it was just a brilliant, brilliant performance and of fear. So those were the ones for me the most.
2: Nick you had mentioned you'd shied away from seeing The Grudge when it had come out with Sarah Michelle Gellar going back for this project and revisiting had you already seen did you end up seeing The Grudge and which one was kind of your gateway to that world was it that one or the the original uh, Japanese version or So I started by way of Takashi
4: Miike discovered J-horror gotcha. and like Audition is one of my favorite movies ever and found my way to Ju-on first and started with Ju-on 1, The Curse, which I think people don't realize that there are two movies that predate Ju-on The Grudge. Um, oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, there's two movies that were straight to video. They're not even 70 minutes long. They're made on VHS tape. And I loved how lo-fi, uh, because of their production constraints, it was so lo-fi, but as a result, it felt so real it felt like you were watching someone's home videos with ghosts in the background there was just something so simple about them that i loved and i thought that the nature of the intertwining storylines was cool it felt like a puzzle you watch the movie the first time and you're like i don't fully understand that let me go back and watch it again and to me i get that that's not You know, not everyone feels that way about movies, but to me, when I watch a movie that I didn't understand, but I can tell the director knew what they were doing, it's not like you're watching a movie that makes no sense. It's like, I didn't catch everything. I need to go back. And now that I know where this goes, track it. And I love movies like that because they feel so engaging. Like I'm obsessed with David Lynch. And that's so much of what I love about him is that you can tell that he's going for something. It's not just like throw caution to the wind, do whatever the hell we want. It's a director doing something intentionally that you may not understand the first time around. And I loved that about the Juan films. And then it was cool to watch, you know, Shimizu really grow as a director through all those movies and get more and more money each time and eventually get to start shooting it on film. And then I eventually, I like watched the American remakes last. I was such a fan of all the Japanese movies that for the longest time, I just didn't even, I hadn't even seen the Sarah Michelle Gellar one. But by the time that I signed on to this project, I was pretty much a on completionist. And uh, I come to this franchise as a fanboy first and foremost. You know, that was one of the big things for me making this movie was that, I think with a lot of reboots and remakes and I don't even really consider this a reboot or a remake this is a new installment in the canon. It was really important for me because I feel like so many reboots and remakes sort of erase the old movies or or try to say like yes we know that existed but this is a new thing. For me it was like no like I want all that mythology to stay i want all that mythology to be the background of our world if you are an audience member who wants that and if you don't know all that mythology this movie will still totally make sense as a standalone thing but it was important that this fit into that canon that i loved so much because i love those movies and i don't want to erase them or say to fans like hey remember that thing you love and that's why you're coming to see this one fuck that movie <laughs> right, <laughs> you right, know? Right. and and i think that's such a weird thing to do and so you know this movie does feel unique and different and is its own thing but when it comes to the mythology and the lore it is all in canon and for those people who are fans like myself and have seen all 13 movies it's like they will they will notice really subtle little things that I've done, I've gone to great lengths to sort of preserve and preserve
3: actually for, yeah. And also for me, it's also has to do with watching that story in 2020 has a whole nother mythology to it because it's not a myth anymore. Rage is, I mean, I think rage is what is driving our world right this minute, unfortunately, and that people are filled with rage and the idea that, these three women, I mean, and also the fact that Nick has made the story center around three women all with sadness in their life and with problems in their life that they're trying to solve, which makes them, which weakens them in some way. That's kind of what I, one of the things I saw in the story is that this, the rage that their own lives, be even before the grudge hits them, are filled with, with a certain kind of sadness that makes them vulnerable and that rage attacks people who are vulnerable because it gives you, it makes you feel powerful or it makes the, it, it somehow, even though it destroys you, it also gives you some kind of odd power. I mean, maybe that has nothing to do with what Nick made, but that was what, it, that's sort of the way it struck me when I read it. I love the character I'm given to play. I just thought she was a fantastic character to explore, especially now being 2020, that we are, have a new perspective on women, new perspective on. And a new perspective on rage.
1: So part of the grudge world incorporates the two ghosts, like the young girl and the young boy, and they each have these iconic looks. Can you talk about what you've created as the iconic ghosts in this film?
4: When they made the original Japanese movies, the look of the ghosts was based on kabuki ghost makeup. Okay. You know, they're, in Japan, there's, uh, so many of the kabuki theater stories are ghost stories, and particularly... The one that Grudge is most inspired by is the Onryo myth, which is it's basically the story of the Grudge. A woman's husband kills her and she haunts him. And it's more complicated than that, but Wikipedia is. (laughs) 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 Um, And so, you know, ghosts in Kabuki theater are white faces with the black eyes. And so that had a lot of cultural power for Japanese audiences and i think that people of my age and younger oh, the aesthetic of those ghosts was sort of ruined by scary movie and interesting all those okay. spoofs of and it's it's a weirdly common problem amongst people who were teenagers when both those movies came out because scary movie i think it was two i don't know which if it was one or two came out at the same time like very close to the grudge and it sort of ruined for the kids who had seen Scary Movie first, it sort of ruined that look. It it made it a joke. I think that fortunately, not necessarily fortunately for the filmmakers of those movies, but fortunately for us making The Grudge now, Scary Movie is not of the zeitgeist anymore. Right. But that look was so tied to something that was so uniquely Japanese. And I felt like it makes total sense that the curse would manifest a Japanese looking ghost to Japanese people who are haunted, but it didn't quite make as much sense that like uh, the curse would manifest it the same way to Americans. Because in my head, when we call them ghosts, it's a little bit of an oversimplification. Like they are not ghosts in the traditional sense. The grudge is a curse that haunts you and it manifests itself in a way that is preying on the vulnerability of the person it is haunting. So in Japan,
3: I was just saying it manifests itself in behavior, totally, which
4: is, and like, you know, so I think that in Japan, when we do for a moment in this film, see Kayako, the the old Japanese ghost, and she appears as she always did. Uh, But in finding the look of, the there are more ghosts in this movie more entities and in trying to figure out what the look of those were it became about like well what is what is an american association with death and ghosts and the the morbid and what is our sort of equivalent to cats and kabuki makeup and to me especially now I think we in America have a real fascination with true crime and crime scene photos and these crime shows. And so the looks of the ghosts came much more from a realistic place of like, what would their corpse look like? And that is how it is animated. And whereas cats in Japan, have a very specific connotation in america we see black cats and think like friday the 13th and bad luck whereas flies and maggots are much more associated with death so you'll often see through the movie if you see a fly fly through the frame and it seems kind of random i bet you something's gonna happen
0: (laughs) we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night
1: one of the most well-known and feared elements of the grudge curse is the croaking sounds of the ghosts can you talk about creating your version of that
4: (laughs) well so the original is takashi shimizu like uh the the japanese director did that sound because the sound originated from when he was a kid he used to do it, he used to go behind his sister and do that like behind her head oh while she was God, like, That was my homework.
3: brother used to do to me, <laughs>
4: <laughs> and now I do it to Lynn. Yeah, <laughs> so it started off like that. And so, we do in some moments in this film use the classic Shimizu croak, but again, it became about how do we first of all, we have we have more ghosts in this movie, and part within the mythology of the original grudge films, the croak was the sound that Kayako made as she was dying. That's like her death rattle. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to stay sort of, you know, we wanted to stay inspired by that sound, but for each one of our characters find their unique version of it based on their specific death. So they're all of a family of sounds, but there's a sort of unique element to each one that that, you know, harkens back to however they died. Oh, that's really that's cool. I didn't
3: know. That. That's great. I'm learning a whole lot of stuff about the movie <laughs> I was just uh, <laughs> That's awesome,
2: though. That's great. It's another perk of
3: doing this stuff, right? And actually, there's that moment then that makes sense, too, with the laughing thing that I do. with Yes.
4: They, I, Uh, well uh, you know lynn's character is one you know another thing about the grudge is that it doesn't always manifest itself as ghosts in in the japanese films sometimes it's possession sometimes it's a ghost and sometimes it's a weird kind of in-between world and lynn's character we play a lot with possession and and what's taking hold of her and she kind of has a different, you know, reveals a different
2: side of how this curse works. So, Lynn, you've worked with everybody from Wes Craven to Juan to the Fairley brothers. Jack Nicholson, you've even worked with him as a director. What what were some of the things that you noticed are benchmarks of what Nicholas brings to an execution of a scene?
3: One of the things for me that was so wonderful is that Nicholas trusted me. As an actor, that's immeasurable, I think. And I'm never sure. So it's always like, do you think we could, you know, I mean, you're, I'm always, you got to be a little careful because everybody's got their own ideas, their own egos, et cetera. He brought a tremendous sense of confidence to me, which I really, I'm telling him right now, I really appreciate it, (laughs) which gives me strength to really explore my own sickness, (laughs) my own interpretation of what I think this woman goes to. We had this, this one thing where, She's been living in this house for a long time. We don't know exactly how long. And she has no food. You know, she tells uh, Andrea, she tells uh, Muldoon to feed her. Please feed me that she's, it's clear she's starving. So I asked Nicholas... she's could eat her own feces because that's all there is to eat. And those are the kinds of questions (laughs) that Lynn Che asks on set. (laughs) Those are
4: amazing (laughs)
2: questions.
4: (laughs) The best moments, Lynn's best takes are we do the scene. She's doing it the way I asked her to do it. And then it's like, all right, (laughs) do whatever you want this time. And then she just comes out with gold. And I think that we also have similar sensibilities in terms of like, she would say something so gross That would make someone else want to puke
3: And I'm like yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah yeah, baby. So just to, so to carry this a little further, we did have a poop station, which was, yeah, which was, which was um, chocolate, um, chocolate pudding and red stuff. Oh, and there's, amazing. I mean, it really
4: hearing Lynche say, can someone put more poop on my hand?
2: It's
4: a wonderful soundbite.
3: That was the benchmark.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, this is also speaking to stuff like that. This is the first if i'm not mistaken the first grudge film that doesn't have a like a pg-13 rating you're going r yep was that something from the get-go in (laughs) developing the script that you knew you were going to be able to achieve an r rating or what was what was the kind of setup for that
4: well it was kind of a interesting thing for me because i knew that the american ones had been pg-13 but By the nature of like how I had to like find the straight to video Juan films, I had no idea what the rating was and the end of Juan 1, The Curse, a guy takes a Baby in a plastic bag and smashes it on the Ooh. sidewalk oh and you see it on camera oh, so I'm wow. thinking there's no way that's a it's pg-13 12. movie yeah turns
3: out it was what? Oh my God. And, and, and saying so... fuck makes it a, a P makes it R. <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. yeah you say it twice so I wasn't really thinking
4: wow. about rating at all when I initially wrote it and I did my first pitch And, like, after I had gotten the movie, I kind of, like, went into more detail about, like, what I was thinking for stuff. And one of the producers was like, hmm, I think this is, like, an NC-17 movie. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) They're like, well, we were hoping it would be a PG-13. And I was like, PG-13? What are you talking about? And I realize now that the way to get around a PG 13 rating is you write an NC 17 movie and then you meet in the middle at R. <laughs> but <laughs> I think what also started happening over the course of writing the movie was more and more rated R horror movies were coming out. And particularly with like the success of a movie like it, where I think traditionally studios would look at a movie like that, be like the main characters are all children. We're talking about like the most famous person. And this is from stranger things. Like we need to be able to show this to kids It was rated R and it did tremendously in the box office. And I think that it gave the studio a bit more confidence that that's what audiences wanted. And as a horror fan, the whole time I'm saying like even a 13 year old would rather sneak into a rated R movie and be like the badass going to a movie he shouldn't than seeing a cool PG 13 movie. Right. It's forbidden right. fruit. Yeah. It's, it's fruit. like, it's you know, true. horror movies are metal, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it's like, you, do, you don't want it to be soft. So making an R rated movie while they were apprehensive at first, I think it very quickly became obvious that this is exactly what we should be doing. This is exactly what audiences want. And I think that it afforded us two things. one, I love body horror. I'm a big Cronenberg fan. So, being able to like up the gore threshold was great. We were able to be more violent. Definitely all the scares, even the non violent stuff, is just more intense. But then I think the added bonus of it was because we knew that it was rated R and the audience would be slightly older, we were able to just make the actual story independent of the scares more adult. You know, all the characters are over 40 dealing with. Super adult problems. problems. And I think that you look at stuff like Haunting of Hill House and Hereditary, and audiences want that family drama, character driven stuff that's not just wall to wall scares. You want to really feel for these people and like emote with these people and with these characters. And being able to just have it be rated R just let us deal with such more serious subject matter. And I think it's a much more. Touching movie, then it's more heartfelt however sad it might be than just what I think a lot of people are expecting from like the new grudge movie
3: and dealing with suicide with, you know, the faith and uh, faith is trying to commit suicide so she doesn't have to deal with the end of her own dementia and and leaving her husband with a you know with a vegetable instead she does a few other things but <laughs> but assisted suicide is a very, still a very sort of touchy topic for people i thought that's faith had a, a lot of interesting elements to her character that that may be a uh, an r rated discussion even about having there's a scene also which is also not in the film of me having sort of um I'm trying to use these pills to kill myself but they're not working and I have these violent violent episodes of almost dying but not dying that is really and horrific. what's crazy
4: is those kinds of scenes are more Difficult for audiences to watch than like seeing someone cut off their own
2: fingers. Sure,
3: yeah. is no. that one of the is that was that too difficult to yeah. watch? probably Because it makes
2: it a little more visceral, right? Like,
4: well, it's... and I think that you you really have to. That's interesting. You have yeah. to. I, I'm someone who I'm like, let's make this bleak as all hell. Like, let's see how dark we can make more it. poop
3: on the hands. <laughs> you no, know,
4: and I think this was an interesting exercise for me that's, of realizing that like. You can't exhaust the audience emotionally and expect them to get to the end of the movie and be happy, you know, and not that you're going to leave a horror movie, especially not one like this happy. But if it becomes too emotionally exhausting, you're taking away from the engagement and I think yeah, they, that they dis-
3: uh, distanced themselves yeah. from the story which yeah. because it's too painful I, yeah. I guess that's a, So there were a couple moments where we got a little too real <laughs> Oh wow. man, I'd like to see that scene actually <laughs> You're going to
2: have a lot of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray <laughs> so make sure you buy the Blu-ray That's great, that's great.
3: <laughs> So Lynn, what do you think scares what is the key to scaring a modern day horror audience? Well that's a great question. I mean I think there's still your classic sort of teenagers that want to have boo, you know, the, where they can we squeeze their, you know, have their date feel them up while they scream. <laughs> so, <laughs> to make them feel better. But so I think that still is very popular on some level. And they're so busy on their phones during the show anyway, they don't see anything. But um, I think I'm a little cynical. But I think in general, you know, the times that we are living in, I think has changed the temperature of what people are interested in seeing and hearing and what is scary. And as I, I kind of touched, I've been talking about this all day, but rage is such a, a powerful, unifying feeling right now. I think so many people are enraged. And I think seeing that separate from yourself, kind of watching that, I think that is horror. I mean, I think what rage does to people has created th- this horror film for sure. I think it's psychological horror, to put it you know more succinctly, really, that it's not so much about the gore. I mean, that'll get a reaction. But I think people go home thinking about, forgive the word insidious, but things that work away at you, that eat away at you. And some of those are um, visuals in horror films, and some of them are just psychological uh, information about the stories. And I think both those things are still very viable in, in giving people an experience. Because the bottom line is, when I go to a film, I want to have an experience of some kind. That make me think about other stuff when I go home. I mean, I'm kind of a, I guess, in a weird way, a sophisticated uh, fan in, of films in that way. And I think this film really, really fulfills that. I think it makes you think about these these characters that you do feel for them. They they all have their own problem and their own pain, which are identifiable. And then what happens to them because of this, you know, this curse. So nothing has really changed that much. But in terms of what's scary, I don't think. But I think the way people receive things is different now because we live in this world we're living in now where people are killing, you know, hurting each other with some kind of glee, it seems being out on the streets of L.A. Right. No. Yeah. I, I I go home and I'm, you know, I feel like I feel rage because I'm I'm overwhelmed by how rude people can be and how. Nasty people are, and how abrupt, and the technology. I mean, not to get into a whole new discussion, but it definitely feeds that because you are distracted from the re- from the world. You're just you're living in some other capsule that has nothing to do with your real life, and I feel very pessimistic about where we're heading right now. So. That for me is the horror.
2: It's very much like you said, it's like a rage culture right now. Yeah, and yeah. then there's all these enable, you know, things that enable that rage.
3: And not like, a club rage. No. talking about no, that.
2: No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. But yeah, the best horror films of all time are all those ones that are rife with the social commentary yeah, and the ones yeah. that you bring home with. And you. And
3: this is. And and I think in, an, in a very subtle way. Because you're still getting a good story and caring about these people. But I think now we take in that information and make it real to ourselves, which is this world we're living in. And I think it, uh, what's the right word? It stimulates thoughts about where we're at with rage.
2: I wanted to nail this. Just briefly looking into the future. Everybody's excited about a potential fifth insidious film. I'm sure you've been asked about this a lot, too. I've asked about it. Yeah. I, mean,
3: <laughs> I know I'm dead. OK, I'm finally really dead and I'm only in the further and whatever they do. There was some talk at one point. Nothing has really been talked about further. I think Blumhouse is so busy right now with so many things and. Whether you know, I was nervous about the fourth one because a part of me went, oh, "Are they really going to do? You know, are they going to squeeze out another one?" And I was just glorified by the fact that it was so successful and people really loved the story. And, and it was such um, an exploration of your character, yeah, which is so, fans. So, it was a treat, yeah, right? So for me, it was heaven. It really was. I, I loved making that film, and um, but I don't know the answer. I I know there's been some talk of a possible. I kind of even know. I've heard about an outline and. It wouldn't have least featured like it does. I mean, I am seriously in the further. I think James had some thoughts about going back to the first Insidious and exploring that family. But that's the only, and that's sort of a disclaimer. I mean, I don't know if that will be what they would do. And I hope, you know, it'll be fun. I mean, it would be fun, but I also don't want to beat a horse that's been a winner. You know, if it's not time, if it's it and people go, gee, I wish there was another one. Well, too bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right.
2: Well, we are going to be able to see you in Dreamcatcher, and then uh, also yeah. Penny Dreadful, which oh,
3: come on. that's going to be really something. Else. Going to the thirties, right? So ex- 38, 1938, oh, Los Angeles. That's Nathan great. Lane and I play sidekicks, more or less. We're friends who are actually Nazi hunters in Los Angeles in nineteen thirty-eight. Oh, 1938. Wow, oh, cool. yeah. that's it's really what a duo, and it's the scare. <laughs> yeah, right. It's really, I mean, and he's he's royalty to me. I'm, I've never been so nervous ever as going going to a set as i have with us i have a rehearsal tomorrow for a big scene that i have and i'm always i'm scared to death i have to be very i realize i better shut up and listen (laughs) bring a cup full of poop bring a cup full of poop (laughs) (laughs) and um john logan who is the showrunner and a brilliant 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 mind and writer he made it very clear this is a writer's show when I say gonna, I don't mean going to. When I say going to, I don't mean gonna. And if there's a period at the end of the sentence, <laughs> it means there's a period at the end of the sentence, not a question mark. Wow. So he's very clear and I kind that's me paraphrasing what he's basically sure. told us. I, sure. I, I'm not repeating his exact words, but and you don't get one word wrong. Not one word. But what I realize is he's such a fine writer and such a fine thinker that if you do that without adding your own spin, you understand what he was thinking when he wrote it as opposed to what you're interpreting that he wrote. And there's something of great value in that for a great writer to to be able to really... Because I said to him, or he told us, he said, I know how I want it to sound when I write it. And he said... Sometimes I'm surprised for the better, but usually not. <laughs> <laughs> That's magic, though. That's so great. Yeah, so it's really exciting. And Nathan Lane really is, I, I mean, he's a royalty. He's, I'm the sweetest man, really hard worker. He's got a huge role in this. And I have a recurring, so it means I'm in six out of the 10. And um, my name is Dottie Mintner. <laughs> And uh, I live in New York, but I'm here in California looking for the bad guys. Oh, you're so psyched
1: (laughs) for that. Awesome. And last question, Nicholas, do you have any sequel ideas?
4: I do, but they sort of involve spoilers. Gotcha. So I um, I think the overarching thing would be to take it to more places than just Japan and America and potentially even leave the modern era. Like I'd... I'd think it would be this is something to me that the grudge is not a thing that happened once. It's been happening forever. And it's just a matter of revealing when and where that happened. And I think that there would be something cool to going way far back and doing something that's a little bit less, less contemporary and seeing that's a where. That's a great idea. What the what shape this sort of thing has taken the form of in other times in other places infection grows
2: yeah expand uh, the canon I love it and uh, b- b- by judging on the release date we'll probably see a blu-ray maybe near October this year which might mean that'd be a great time to do a grudge maze in, in oh, like yeah. Universal or somewhere I like that love right grudge
4: maze <laughs> uh, <yes>. Universal <laughs> if
2: you're listening make us a grudge maze <laughs> and <inland> Lynn will come <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome you guys alright well we've kept you long enough thank you so much thank for being here we're such guys. huge well, thank fans
3: thank you for treating us to You're beautiful, beautiful. Experience. I won't tell you say too much more about it. But oh. Your home is an experience. Thank you oh. so much. Yeah. Do your world listeners world
2: know what this place looks like? We've never shown no. pictures. It's been talked about, but no one's. Yeah, we've never. Just guys, as it's well. Crazy. Just as well.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let them use their imagination. Oh, that's
2: one. That's a wonderful thing to say. No. Well, congrats on the film again, Thank and you. everybody. The Grudge only in theaters everywhere January third. Thank you again, Nick and Lynn.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: That was a Boo Crew podcast episode ninety two. Special thanks to our guests Nicholas Pesh and Lynn Shea. Follow Lynn at Miss Lynn Shea on
2: Instagram and at Lynn Shea on Twitter. Nicholas can be found at the Nick Pesh. That's P E S C E on Twitter.
1: At time of release, see the Grudge in theaters everywhere January third. Production music for this episode provided by Powerman five thousand. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet scream.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast haunt the boo crew at tales from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is lauren and trevor shand and leone d'antonio the boo crew is produced by lauren shand chopped and sliced by trevor shand the boo crew is a tsp creation part of the Bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.